Hi everybody, welcome to a brand new Prog Report series. This is the Prog Report Profiles, where we are going to look at a band and look back at their history, some of the uh, unique demos, live tracks, unreleased things, stories about the band, some interviews. And uh, in this first series of the Prog Report Profiles, we're going to talk about the Neil Morse band. And of course, we're talking about Neil Morse, Mike Portnoy, Eric Gillette, Bill Hubauer, and Randy George who have just released their brand new album, the double concept album, The Great Adventure, which is available now. And with me uh, to do this series is our good friend, Jeff Bailey. Hello, Roy. Hello, everyone. Of course, you know Jeff from all the various podcasts. He's been on the Top Fives and his Yes Years 50 series that you can also find on our podcast network. And of course, if you've missed any of the other podcasts, they're all available on progreport.com and our various podcast outlets you can find them all if you go to the website yeah and uh, a really great time to be looking at this band and their histories because uh, as you said a new album out a tour just about to begin a streaming app launched a lot of a lot of really good reviews and reports of the album and no doubt i think all the tour reviews and stuff will will follow soon so a great time to be to be looking at this band in a bit more detail and maybe putting some music out there that you haven't come across before from the members or indeed the band. Right. So in this first episode, we're going to talk mainly about Neil and Mike going back to when Spock's beard began through how they did Transatlantic and some of the early era. And in subsequent episodes, of course, we're going to touch on some of the other band members, uh, other work and how they became a band and, and so on. Uh, we're going to kick off with one of the songs from The Great Adventure. They've released a number of videos, uh, as they did with The Similitude of a Dream. There was five or six videos that came out. But we're going to go with one of the deep album tracks uh, that we think is pretty great. This is called Fighting with Destiny. Ain't no diamond lane Ain't no sofa 
Jeff, why don't you uh, kick us off with the first tale of Mr. Neil Morse? Okay. And uh, yeah, this is a bit of a magical history tour. Um, So uh, that might refer to something we're going to listen to later on. But of course, Neil probably came to prominence in the world of prog rock with Spock's Beard, and in particular, their first album, The Light. Um, Neil's career before that was very varied. He he tried to make it as a singer, songwriter, various bands. He even moved to Nashville to try and write some country music. And it, nothing really ever clicked. And, I mean, he tells himself he was practically on the point of giving up when he decided to write probably the most indulgent thing that he'd ever written, um, a real pro- piece of progressive rock. And he wrote the song The Light and um, also a number, most of the tracks that actually ended up making up that first Spock's Beard album. He demoed it. He got his brother Al to play on it. And he says he didn't really think Al was that into it. Um, but a few weeks later, Al called him and said, like, this is great. We have to do it. And so they put together um, a band and um, started to record that first album. And one of the interesting things was was that whenever they went back to record, actually, the track The Light, there were a number of things from the original demo that they just couldn't recreate in the studio. And so some of the guitar solos, um, some of the Catfish Man bit are actually flowing across from that original eight-track demo. And the very first um, Spock's Beard from the Vault release um, includes that very first demo of The Light, and that's the track we're going to play in a moment or two. Prior to working on the book that I put out last year, the Essential Modern Progressive Rock Albums book, I did have a chance to speak with Neil about the making of The Light, and here's a little bit about the making of the album from his perspective. And one of my favorite stories about the whole Spock's Beard phenomena is... (laughs) if I can call it that, is that we went to the Vine Street Bar and Grill in L.A. on the Monday night jam night. Now, on Monday night, they had musicians come and they would have a station for each position, you know, bass, guitar, keys, whatever, drums. And they would put everybody's name in a hat. And they would randomly pick out people's names. So that night, they picked names out of the hat and it was Neil Morse, Alan Morse, and Nick DeVirgilio. You know, there was about 40, 50 musicians there, I think, as I remember. And uh, I, uh, what I really remember is how badly I played. I was like, I think I played my solo in the wrong key. I mean, I was just, I was horrible. But we talked to Nick afterwards. Who he, Nick was amazing. He must have, I don't think he, I don't even think Nick was 21. Uh, he was super young and had a beard and, uh, but we talked to him afterwards, and he said, yeah, I love Prague. You know, Phil Collins is one of my favorites. And still I was thinking, well, you know, he'll, he'll flake for sure. I mean, L.A. musicians are all, like, the biggest flakes in the world. Some of them are my best friends. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, lo and behold, he actually came to my house the next day, picked up a cassette demo, and then called me back, I think, right away and said, I'm in. This is amazing. And then we got Dave Maros, who we knew, and uh, Rio came later. Uh, Rio originally was supposed to just help us out at our live shows. That's why he's not credited. He's not actually credited on the Light album. I did all the keyboards on the Light album. But we added Rio later because uh, he was great and he was so much fun. 
makes a dream so very different from any other dream where is that straight line that i can hold up to the light and say no this is not right this does not stand up in the light
மேல பாடி
All right, so the light for me is I'll, I've been on record as saying that that's probably my favorite Neil Morse track to this date. It might not have been at the time when I first heard it, but it, it continues to be the one that I always go back to. Uh, I find it just utterly genius, and I still feel like that's the uh, the, the the beacon for the last. 25 years of modern Prague, um, you know, maybe that along with, with some dream theater tunes, but at the time, and for me, if I'm looking back, then there was dream theater and then there was a bunch of other regular rock bands and nobody had yet risen to what I felt the level of dream theater was doing at the time until I discovered Spock Spear and Neil Morse. Um, and then all of a sudden there were two bands that I felt were equally like amazingly awesome. Um, and so, you know, I started with kind of strangers and work my way back. And when, when, finally, when I got to the light, I really was hooked, um, around that same time, coincidentally is when scenes from memory came out from dream theater. And so uh, music at that time for me, while in the mainstream rock maybe was, was grunge and, all this kind of stuff. I was in heaven with some of the best music I'd ever heard in my life, discovering what would eventually become two of my favorite artists of all time. So did you did you come upon Dream Theater before Spock's Beard? That yeah, I was a Dream Theater fan from Images okay. and Words from day one. I was from from Pull Me Under because I was kind of the other way around. Um, and I had you know I'd I'd like. Genesis, yes, bands like that, but it, and and Marillion, I suppose as well. But I'd never really found, um, you know, much more in that space. And I'd heard a bit of Dream Theater, but there were I, I, I didn't really think of them as like a prog band. I thought of them where they they were just a you know a rock band. I wouldn't have seen them as being the same sort of thing as Yes or Genesis. Um, and my intro to Spock's Beard was reading a magazine review that said that the intro to Beware of Darkness sounded like an outtake from uh, Yes's Fragile album, um, which it sort of does if you listen to the first minute and a half, but after that it goes crazy and does things that Yes would never dream of doing. But I bought Beware of Darkness just on the strength of that one review, which I've been trying to find for years. I've never been able to find it. but um, And then I, I, I probably came into Dream Theater later, and my first step into Dream Theater... I just wasn't really sure because there were parts of it sounded a bit heavier than I might like. And I actually bought the Live at the Marquee first because it was cheaper. <laughs> it was like a kind of mini album. It was cheaper than buying a, a full a full CD. So that's, that's how I came into them. The thing that stuck out to me with Dream Theater and also with Spock's Beard is the ability to be technical, heavy at times, with Dream Theater bordering on Metallica influenced at times. But always keying on melodies and good hooks and writing choruses. And, to, and up until that point, I had not listened to bands that were able to do both. Some bands were writing pop songs, your 80s hair metal things, which were good musicians, but they didn't really focus on musicianship. Um, or you had bands that were overly technical, but not nearly as melodic or kept my interest from that perspective. So these were bands that really combined all those elements for me. Yeah, and I think I think the, the tracks that really pulled me into Dream Theater was act, the one was the, that live version of Surrounded from that marquee album because it showed that it was more than just about being like Metallica, you know? Of course, when you talk about Mike Portnoy, it all starts with Dream Theater. 
the band that he started with John Mayung and John Petrucci back in their Berkeley days. Uh, of course, they finally hit it big with their 1992 album, Images and Words, and the hit single, Pull Me Under. And they had subsequent success with Awake, although not nearly as big. Uh, and Portnoy around this time had already begun to establish himself as one of the premier drummers in the world. Late 90s, he got involved with Liquid Tension Experiment and other side projects and was really thought of as one of the go-to drummers. Uh, and it was only a matter of time before he might get involved in other side projects. When we're circling back now to around 1988-1999, Dream Theater had fallen on struggles with their album Falling Into Infinity, which was driven by the record label trying to get them to write hits and become more radio-friendly and recapture some of the images and words, Pull Me Under success. Um, They weren't happy with how that came out. Fans weren't necessarily thrilled with everything on that album. Although looking back now, I still say that that's actually a pretty decent record, maybe minus a couple of songs. Um, But I I still enjoy that album very much. Um, And I think the band has learned that as well. Uh, But uh, Scenes from Memory was uh, their concept album, Epic, uh, their, their version of Rush's 2112 that went against the grain and ultimately proved to be the jumping off point for the next 20 years. And uh, here's Mike talking about the making of that album. It was do or die. Uh, You know, we basically were on the verge of, of breaking up on the heels of the falling into infinity tour. And uh, we knew things had to change. And uh, one of the big changes was the keyboard player. And uh, as much as I love Derek and, and still to this day, he's one of my favorite keyboard players of all time. And I love his style and his personality. It just didn't feel right with what was Dream Theater at that time. And uh, after John and I had made two albums with Jordan, uh, with the Liquid Tension Experiment, we just knew that Jordan was exactly what, the, what Dream Theater needed um, to, to you know, turn over a new leaf and, and make a, a strong change. So we brought Jordan on board and, uh, you know, the big internal change was that we decided, look, if, if this band is going to stay together, we, we don't want any input from the label. We don't want to work with an outside producer. We don't want to hear from anybody. Everybody's just got to leave us the fuck alone and let us do what we do. And that meant myself and John Petrucci taking control and self-producing from that point forward. And, uh, so between John and I self-producing, between Jordan injecting new life into the band, um, and then the whole idea of doing our first concept album and basing it as a sequel to one of our most beloved songs, it just, you know, all the wheels were in motion for, uh, you know, what what uh, turned into being, a, you know, a masterpiece, and in my mind... Um, the, the greatest achievement of the band. So one of the interesting things about Scenes from Memory is that they the band were really uh, wanting to keep the fact that it was wor- the working title of it was Metropolis Part Two. They didn't want anybody to know that. So any demos that came out, any promotional materials that came out from the record label at that time, had to be only labeled as Scenes from Memory. Oh, okay. And the first single that went to radio. Uh, and press had uh, home, which was the eventually uh, you know the long epic on the album, but it was uh, an edited version of home and labeled on it is 
that says Dream Theater, Scenes from Memory, no mention of it being Metropolis Part 2. Um, so we're going to play the edited version of Home. <laughs>
talked earlier on about finding the Beware of Darkness album. And of course, this was back in the days, way before the internet. And I certainly find that you didn't find out much about albums that were coming out until they actually landed in your record shop. And um, so having heard the, the Spock's Beard Beware of Darkness, having got the light, I periodically would glance into the Spock's Beard rack to see if anything else new came out and Kindness of Strangers came out. And then shortly after it, I can remember seeing, oh, look, someone stuck a CD that doesn't belong in this rack, but then realizing it was Neil Morse's first solo album, which must have been around 1999. And um, I had a quick glance at that and saw that Nick DiVirgilio was playing drums on it. So I thought, well, it can't be massively different from Spock's Beard. And I bought it and, you know, it's a it's a really, really great album and one that I would say is probably maybe with, with Neil's solo career restarting with Testimony, it nearly gets forgotten about because people think of Testimony as like his first solo album. But um, the Neil Morse, Neil Morse album is a mixture of, I suppose, a little bit of his singer-songwritery stuff, but also this um, really uh, amazing prog track probably 20 minutes 25 minutes called a whole nother trip and um again a great a greatly sort of neglected classic up until it appeared live at um in morse fest and 2015 and uh to the amazement i think of a lot of people there i think probably that was something that people were definitely not expecting to hear at morse fest do you do you remember that kind of moment roy or that was one of the thrills uh, uh, as a longtime fan, never thinking I would ever see that song perform live. Um, you know, if I'm putting myself back in 1999, one of the things about me as a music fan is when I discover a new band or a new artist that I like, I get consumed with it and I pick up everything that I can find all at once. And luckily, around that time in the late 90s, not only was I able to discover all the stuff that Neil was doing with Spock's beard, he just happened to keep putting out records as would become his trait you know, over the next 20 years, the, recording sometimes three albums a year with three different yeah. bands. And so um, this was a thrill. And I, I'm a very big fan of, of uh, you know, good singer-songwriter stuff, So you know, some some pop artists, things like the Beatles and, and, you know, Bruce Springsteen or what have you. Um, so to find out that Neil Morse also had that side to him was, was great. And I, I love that first soul album. I think it's, it's spectacular. And then he threw in that epic prog thing at, at the second half of the album, which filled the, the prog void for, for any fan. And the highlight for me was the, you know, the second to last part of it, which is the man who would be King, which I think is uh, amazing. So, uh, to to see that perform live was uh, was certainly a thrill, and and then of course with every Morse Fest um, yeah, at Radiant, uh, the team with Neil and, and everybody there, they've put out these amazing packages um, every year that continue to be uh, uh, just awesome, and they grow and <laughs> they grow in scale and uh, scope with every every year. Uh, so we'll play. The bit of that um, whole nother trip is is a long, you know, 20, 25 minute epic. We'll play the man who would be king from Morse Fest. And listen out for, I think, the thing that probably Neil was most excited about at Morse Fest that, that year, which was the debut of the live Quika, which is the instrument that right. does the. 
type thing. <laughs> My terrible Quika impression. But Neil was very, very excited about that. I'm not yes, sure the crowd really that followed, out. That out followed in the, it, uh, but uh, in the clip. pretty fun.
you know what, we, we have one more very important thing that we must mention, and it must be mentioned right now. This is a Latin American percussion instrument. It's called a cuica. It's that thing that goes You heard it on my records probably, right? I bought one. Come on, this is Gabe Klein back here. He's gonna demonstrate. Only at Morse Fest! So now, one of the amazing things in the world of Prague in 2000 happens, where you have the formation of one of the great supergroups to ever come out of this genre. Um, And at the time, if you would have asked someone like me, and I don't know if there's other people out there who thought, what would you like to see as a band? Me at that time, I probably would have said, I'd love for Neil Morris and Mike Portnoy to work on something together. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> they thought the same thing. So, you know, this was amazing. And uh, and really, um, I, I had no knowledge of uh, the Flower Kings at the time. Uh, of course, I knew about Marillion because they had already had some success. Uh, so you bring in Royna Stolt. Uh, and you bring in Petro Avas, and now you have really four guys that were leading the Prague movement uh, through the 90s and, and into later. And uh, that first Transatlantic album is, uh, is uh, one of the seminal moments of the last 25 years. It continues the building of what we all know as, as Prague rock now. How did you come about yeah, it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, Marillion would have been a much bigger band in my history than I think probably in yours. And being in Britain... I mean, people, people maybe know, but maybe they don't. But, you know, Marillion, right from the start, were a band who were in the charts and who were on the radio. And I first heard Marillion on the Top 40 countdown, which used to be on Sunday nights. And listening to a bit of Genesis at the time and being interested in the the more weird, non-hit single stuff that appeared on Genesis Three Sides Live, and then hearing Marillion Garden Party on the radio with that kind of moogie synth classic prog intro and going gosh this sounds a bit like that weird genesis stuff um and i mean that was a song you know that was that was quite high profile in in the uk and marillion continue, continued to be that for quite a long time so i so i knew of pete Traris for from way back um and again 
it it sounded like a great combination, which of course originally was um didn't have Rowena in it. It was originally meant to be Jim Mateus, and then things got um delayed and he couldn't make it, as I understand, and so Rowena fitted in and yeah. um you know definitely brought his own his own thing to it. So I can remember reading stuff on the Neil Morse website, you know, trailing that and being quite excited and interested as to whether, you know, would it would it sound like a kind of a heavier version of Spock's beard or what would it be like? But it turned out to be exactly what you said, you know, an absolute, you know, classic prog um, album and just very much in, in, in the mold of that classic stuff, not, you know, not trying to get on the radio, not trying to, um, you know, have hit singles, just doing the sort of, I suppose, a bit like the light that we talked about earlier on, just doing, you know, musicians doing the sort of music that they love and that flows out of them. So the history of Transatlantic, the beginning of the band, really goes back to Mike Portnoy, who, after doing Liquid Tension Experiment and Jordan Rudis now being in Dream Theater, decided he wanted another side project to do. And he was a big fan of Spock's Beard at the time. Back then, he was always writing about what Spock's Beard were doing, and, and you knew that he liked them. Um, and he wanted to do something with Neil Moore. So that's how that began. He reached out to Neil. Uh, and of course, Jim Matheos was originally supposed to be the guitar player. And, uh, and after that didn't work out, uh, that's when they reached out to Royna and got Pete involved and um, really didn't meet until they convened to do the first recording of the first album. One of the interesting things that, that I was able to do at, at that time was I was working for a record label at the time, the label that Dream Theater was on. And uh, I had a friend that worked at Metal Blade that was distributing uh, Transatlantic in the U.S., and uh, he knew that I was one of the few people in America that was a huge fan of Spock's beard and Neil Morris and all of that and Dream Theater. And uh, he sent me in advance of the first Transatlantic. And uh, around that time, I was working a gig for the label for Dream Theater on the Scenes from a Memory Tour. And um, so I, I was able to uh, to go backstage after the show and was able to, uh, to say hi to the band and Mike. And I brought the Transatlantic uh, to, to show it to Mike and, and talk to him about it. And, uh, I don't know, he probably wouldn't remember this, but, um, he was surprised that he, according to him, he hadn't even seen the album cover yet. So, uh, that was, that was pretty funny. And, um, the publicity guys get it before uh, the bounty. It, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes. And so, and so that was a thrill, by the way, an interesting note about the scenes for memory toward the Dixie dregs were the opening band on that tour with Steve Morris, um that's his his band and uh, of course they eventually would work together which we will get to and indeed flying and colors. of course the other flying so, colors um, connection is that transatlantic the original name of transatlantic was second nature and in fact i think inside out went so far as to putting out a press release announcing that which two days later then they put out another one saying actually they were called transatlantic so there you go <laughs> so uh with the Transatlantic albums, there's been a series of uh, demo releases that have come out and various mixes and, of course, various live versions of, of the tours and, and so on. Royna Stolt did his own version uh, mixing the first album, and uh, we're going to play a track from that uh, because, uh, obviously, we, we think many people probably have the original album and the original version. Um, so we're going to play his mixed version of We All Need Some Light, 
which that song also, interestingly enough, was one of two songs in contention for the Spock's Beard V album or five album. Um, it was that or Goodbye to Yesterday. And obviously that band chose Goodbye to Yesterday. Um, and Transatlantic ended up with this classic Indeed. song. Just a 
So now we're into the 2000s and you have Dream Theater going strong. You have Spock's Beard going strong and, and getting better. They had just released the V uh, album and um, were really growing in popularity that there was a big seller, according to Inside Out, at, for the label at the time in the band. Um, and uh, you had Transatlantic, which went ahead and one year later released their follow-up, Bridge Across Forever, which uh, has the classic albums, you know, uh, Stranger in Your Soul, classic song, Stranger in Your Soul. So uh, everything seemed to be going great. And Spock's Beard were about to release their double concept epic album, Snow. And I'm sure most of you know, if you're listening to this show, you probably know the story of how um, Neil was going through various changes in his life and in his faith and had reached a point where he felt that the thing that he um, was meant to do was was to... Um, come out of Spock's beard and indeed transatlantic really into um, the unknown um, trusting in God um, as to what would happen and so at the end of um, the snow recording sessions Neil explained this to the band and as you can imagine that was something that was probably quite shocking I suppose given um, the amount of momentum that had been built and given I suppose this amazing work that had been put together through a whole lot of adversity um you know, re- recording sessions postponed due to 9-11 um all all those kind of things and um but it was what neil felt to do and so the album came out um without any supporting tour and without any um live performances and we've got an interview clip um of neil talking about leaving spock's beard let's hear it from his perspective what was happening with me was I was experiencing the Holy Spirit a lot in really deep ways at that time. And so that was what I, what was coming out of my heart was stuff all about that. You know, you, people, people write, any creative people that are writing music or lyrics or books or whatever, they're writing from their hearts. You know, they're writing from their experiences. They're writing about the things that matter the most to them. And so... That's what I was doing, and what was coming out of me were songs like Open Wide the Floodgates and Love Beyond Words and I Will Go and Wind at My Back. And so I was, so the challenge was to try and take that material and make it work in this Spock's Beard concept album thing. (laughs) So it was a real uh, challenge and uh, and then in the middle of all that came the prayer that I should, uh, feeling like I should finish the album and then quit the band. And so it was a real uh, gut-wrenching Garden of Gethsemane kind of experience for me personally. So Morsefest presented an opportunity um, both for Neil to get back with Spock's um, plus Ted Leonard and Jimmy Keegan, who had joined the band since he had left, and perform Snow live for the very first time in its entirety. And that was, yet again, another amazing performance. Um, not even just a straight reading of the album, but also working in Ted and Jimmy, giving them vocal parts, giving Nick some more um, vocal parts into it as well. Again, just another mind-blowing, incredible performance um that i was going to say never repeated but of course it, it was it was repeated at lorelei a few months later um but yeah twi- twice performed and who knows if if that would ever happen again 
but um, just brilliant to have all of that talent on one stage, um, both vocally, instrumentally, and this amazing work, which meant a lot to a lot of the fans, but also meant a lot to to Neil and to the band. And you could very clearly see parts of it where Neil was very emotional about about the subject matter and um, the content and the context of that. So one of the things that really was amazing for me with uh, watching that Snow Life performance was I had uh, throughout the entire time that Neil was in the band uh, from 95 through 2002, never even got close to seeing the band live. They never came around. They didn't tour much in the States and certainly didn't come near where I was living. And uh, I finally got to see Neil and, uh, and Flying Colors and some of these other bands that, that he was in later in, in 2012, 13, eventually when, when tours started to expand and um, was able to, to start seeing some of these shows with the cruises and things like that. But there was something really special about seeing Neil with the original lineup of Spocks playing that album that had never been played live. So that's something that always uh, always will stand out to me as a, a pretty special weekend. And one of the things that they you had mentioned that they did that was really special was incorporating Ted and Nick and Jimmy and everybody into the into the whole lineup and having various songs change with them singing. Uh, so we're gonna play uh, one of the tracks that features uh, the live performance. Uh, with Ted Leonard and Nick DeVirgilio joining Neil in singing Solitary Soul from Morse Fest. Uh, this is Snow Live. Solitary soul 
solitary soul oh. I've been here since long ago Buried in my tears Feels like I've Dry your tears be
So as we come to wrapping up this first episode, we're going to close on a bit of an upbeat, happy note. Uh, so as best as could be, but no one really knew at the time uh, in 2002, 2003, if Neil was going to re- be recording again, if there was going to be Transatlantic again, what, what was going to happen to Spock's beard. So one of the things that did happen was a Beatles tribute band, uh, a live performance with Mike Portnoy, Neil Morris, and Paul Gilbert, and Matt Bissonette. Uh, and they played um, in New York uh, a, a whole long set of a million Beatles songs. And uh, <laughs> you can see the whole thing on YouTube. Or you can uh, download you it from Mike, it? Mike Portnoy's website, I think, as well. I think he's he's got it all up in digital download now. Support your local artist. <laughs> but yeah, amazing. <laughs> and, and they actually they did that again about seven or eight years later and did another... I don't know. I, th- I think the first looking at my CD, it looks like thirty songs first time around, and the second time around, probably even more than that, like maybe forty songs and no doubles, no duplicates between the two Yellow Matter Custard shows. <laughs> Just brilliant. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, and of course you should uh, look online for Mike and Neil competing with na- uh, name that tune on Beatles songs. Uh, which is always for a uh, good for a laugh. So we're going to end on uh, the opening track of the first Yellow Matter Custard um, live show, uh, where the band does Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for listening, and join us uh, in the not too distant future for part two. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>